This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, here with, well, not a new episode. And why is that? Because I'm utterly exhausted and I've been working on a deadline for a thing I can't talk about yet, uh, but that has basically taken up all of the free time that I did not have. And so this week, I simply wasn't able to get you all a new episode, um, let alone the one that you deserve. Uh, But instead, we are going to listen to some classic Pride episodes. Have I decided what episodes are going to be in the episode you're about to hear yet? No, um, because I'm recording this uh, at the very last minute. I'm just going to throw something together and you're all going to love it. 
I assume. But fortunately, I do have a brand new episode coming to you on Friday. It is the conversation I had about asexuality in Greek mythology. I'm so excited for you all to hear it. We have another really exciting one coming up the week after, all about queer Dionysus, specifically Dionysus as a non-binary character. Absolutely fascinating with that one as well. So, so much to look forward to. And today's episode is going to have uh, some stories that hopefully you haven't heard for a long time or you haven't heard them at all and you're still going to get something amazing out of the episode as well. I do just want to remind you all the uh, pieces that I'm about to put in here are from varied times throughout the life of this podcast. You are going to hear differing levels of audio quality and storytelling and sourcing and all of those things. But at the same time, they are all going to be some fun stories about LGBTQIA characters in Greek mythology, and we can always use more of that. This is episode 131, Queer as Hell, Stories of LGBTQIA Characters in Greek Myth. This one's all about the lovers, Heracles and Hylas, because that's what they were. Heracles and Hylas were lovers, and Hylas was not Heracles' only boyfriend. He had relationships with men and women. Heracles got around. He was very open with his love. We can choose to ignore the time that he killed his wife and children. As I said, the time of Heracles' life when he was in love with Hylas and in a kind of pseudo-relationship was during the time Heracles spent with the Argonauts, helping Jason complete the quest for the Golden Fleece. Jason's name is the one attached to the quest, but he had so many better, more impressive heroes with him on that journey. Heracles, Atalanta, among others. Heracles was along for that ride with his squire, Hylas. This is why I called it a pseudo-relationship. It seems that Hylas was Heracles' squire, his assistant of sorts, but they were certainly in love as well. That much is acknowledged in most, if not all, of the sources. Hylas is also referred to as beautiful, lovely. Apparently, he was just gorgeous. Heracles was a lucky guy. Heracles and Hylas, along with Jason and the other Argonauts, were in the middle of their quest when our story begins. They had just reached Mycia when Heracles, in all his Herculean strength, broke an oar mid-row. The ships of ancient Greeks used both sails and oars, you see, and at that moment, all the men and Atalanta of the Argo were rowing frantically. Of course, for the other heroes, that just meant rowing as strong as they could. But for Heracles, well, Heracles was fucking strong. I mean, there's a reason he's famous for exactly that, and that there's a word, Herculean, which means having enormous strength. Heracles was too strong even for the oars of the Argo, and his snapped. This was simply not acceptable for Heracles. He couldn't imagine sitting idle on the ship while the others rowed. Unheard of. So the very moment that they landed on Mycia... Heracles went looking for a tree that he could turn into a new oar, because he's the type of dude who goes looking for a straight-up tree to, what, pick up and carve into an oar? 
Anyway, Heracles is a badass, and in this story, he's not problematic, so it's nice for once. The other Argonauts, including Heracles' beloved Hylas, made themselves comfortable planning for the night they would spend in Mycia. Heracles had an exact tree in mind. He would need it not to have too many branches, those wouldn't be helpful, and it would need to be big enough and strong enough to act as an oar and not break again like that silly old oar he'd had earlier. The nerve of that one. So when he found the perfect pine tree off in the woods, he planted his feet wide and wrapped his arms around the trunk of the tree. With a strong yank, Heracles ripped the tree from the ground, roots and all. Honestly, I would have loved to see it. Heracles all muscly and sweaty. Get it together, Liv. Heracles was gone for some time in search of his tree, and meanwhile the other Argonauts set about making a camp for the night. They made a fire and were cooking a nice dinner by the time Heracles returned. But when Heracles arrived back at the camp, he noticed that Hylas wasn't there. Immediately concerned for this man he loved, but who was also his squire and therefore doubly important, he asked the others where Hylas had gone. They told Heracles that he'd gone off with a bronze pitcher in search of water, that he'd been gone for a few hours now. Polyphemus, another one of the Argonauts, they said, had gone looking for him. Heracles was really panicking now. Hylas had been gone way too long, so Heracles immediately went off in search of him. He cried out for Hylas frantically, his voice cracking in fear and grief. But the first person Heracles came upon wasn't his beloved Hylas. Instead, it was Polyphemus, who told him that he had heard Hylas cry out and had gone running after the sound. Polyphemus was worried that Hylas had been grabbed by a wild animal and tried his best to find the young man, but he hadn't been able to find anything except Hylas's bronze pitcher was knocked over by a river. When Heracles heard this, his panic only heightened. He was afraid and angry, and he raced through the forest in search of any evidence of where Hylas had been or what could have taken him. What Heracles doesn't know is when Hylas had left the group with his bronze pitcher to find some fresh water, he had soon come upon a stream with perfect, crystal-clear water. What Hylas didn't know as he approached the river was that there were nymphs in its depths. Whether they hid or he simply didn't notice them, Hylas didn't know the nymphs were there until they, finding him so beautiful that they simply had to kiss him, reached up, grabbed hold of Hylas, and pulled him towards them very much against his will. The nymphs pulled so hard, so frantically and violently, that they pulled him into the water with a splash. Poor Hylas was only able to cry out once before he hit the water. This was the cry that Polyphemus heard. Is it refreshing to have an obvious sexual assault perpetrated by women for once? Oh, no? It's just fucking awful? Heracles and Polyphemus continued their search for Hylas, but it was pointless. He had been dragged into the water by nymphs and would never be able to leave. It suggested maybe he lived and was straight up kidnapped, or he was killed, but whatever his fate, poor Heracles never found his beloved Hylas. He wouldn't give up the search, though, and in the morning he and Polyphemus hadn't returned, so Jason ordered the Argonauts to leave without them. Because Jason was an asshole, but we all knew that.
once again from one of my most beloved friends, Ovid, comes a story of Hermes, Mercury, as the Romans called him, and Venus, or Aphrodite. Though you'll quickly learn that everything would have made a hint more sense if Ovid had used the Greek names for these gods rather than the Roman. The caves on Mount Ida are well known. So many things happened on Mount Ida in mythology that one might have to believe there were in fact two mountains, which is my very awkward way of explaining that in classical mythology there were two Mount Idas, one on the island of Crete and one in the general area of Troy, though really just Anatolia in Turkey. I also learned, while clarifying Idas, that there's one in Salmon Arm, British Columbia, which is interesting, while simultaneously being boring, because, I'm sorry, nothing exciting happens in Salmon Arm. It's called Salmon Arm, like the fish, but with an arm. Anyway, this story from my beloved Ovid takes place in the Phrygian Ida, the one in Turkey. In the caves on this Mount Ida, the child of Venus and Mercury is born. Ovid refers to Venus, Aphrodite, here as the Cytherian goddess, which might be his way of not ruining the meaning of the child's name by calling Aphrodite by her Roman name of Venus. Because yes, the child of Mercury and Venus is named Hermaphroditus, a combination of Hermes and Aphrodite, because the origin of the character is indeed Greek. Though it's our friend Ovid who tells their story in the most beautiful and crazy of ways. In some versions, Hermaphroditus is born intersex, with both sex organs, giving us the word hermaphrodite. But in others, like this one, he's born male. He's just the cutest baby, taking equally the looks of his parents, quite the looker. Raised by nymphs, naiads, because of course his parents were too busy, the gods rarely do the raising of their children. They've got far too many humans to have sex with, and wars to cause, you know. When he was a teenager, Hermaphroditus decided to go out on his own, to explore beyond the mountain where he'd been raised. He wanders and eventually comes upon a pool. Its waters are so crystal clear, you can see the bottom. There's no plants, no icky lake things that tickle your feet and make you feel like there just has to be the most terrifying monster looking in the depths. No, it was pristine, like the souk potholes, which is a reference to maybe two people. Please let me know if one of these people is you. Beyond the pool, there were meadows, the most beautiful green meadows, the flowers, and gosh, just everything you can imagine that make up a beautiful meadow. I don't know. This pool, surrounded by this beautiful meadow, is home to a nymph. But she's no ordinary nymph. She doesn't like hunting or archery or even running. A woman after my own heart, honestly. This nymph is the only one of her sisters not to want to join Diana, Artemis. You all know how Diana loved her nymphs. And this nymph's name is Salmachus. And when Salmachus sets eyes on Hermaphroditus, oh man, she was in, like truly madly deeply, into this random stranger she'd just come upon because holy goddamn is he hot. Ovid says it best when he describes her first speaking to him. She compliments everything she can think of. Oh man, are you a god because you look like it? If no, your parents are blessed as hell. If you've got a brother, he must feel lucky. Or a sister, man, she must feel fortunate. But luckiest of all must be the woman you're going to marry. And say, is there one? Because if not, let me just put my name in the running right here and now. If you don't have a bride chosen yet, please, for the love of God, choose me. She says. And if you think I'm making things up right now, other than a bit of colloquializing on my part, as I want to do, then you've got another thing coming. This is her speech, though perhaps the original is a bit more ovity. And honestly, even more like that. 
Hermaphroditus is a bit taken aback, not because he isn't flattered, but because he just has no idea what's going on. He's been totally ignorant of love and attraction and really any of what Salmachus has just said to him. I mean, he lived on a mountain with a bunch of nymphs who raised him until about five minutes ago. He needs some time to get used to the real world, where nymphs are super forward and just a bit thirsty. Salmachus, though, is persistent. She just keeps trying to convince Hermaphroditus that he should be into her, and then she straight up tries forcing him to kiss her. It's not good, and one of the few, if not only, stories where the woman is being the absolute creep and bordering on rapey. Finally, Hermaphroditus is so over trying to keep pushing her off of him that he tells her if she doesn't stop, he's just going to leave her alone in her pool. Salmachus finally listens to Hermaphroditus' protests, and she tells him that if he really doesn't want her, she'll leave him alone, and he can enjoy the pool all to himself. (sighs) And then she straight up pretends to leave, but she doesn't, and she just hides behind a bush to watch him. Fucking creep. Hermaphroditus believes he's alone, and he decides to take a bath in the pool. He strips down and jumps in, and this only makes Salmachus crazier, more obsessed with well, straight up raping him. She jumps in after him, herself now naked, and grabs hold of Hermaphroditus even as he protests. She grabs him and she kisses him and touches him, grabbing hold with all her might, completely against his will. Ovid describes her hold on him as a snake's coiling tail, ivy around tree trunks, octopus that hold on to its prey beneath the sea. Not the nicest descriptors, but then Ovid tends to be brutally honest about what he's describing. In this case, Salmachus assaulting Hermaphroditus. Salmachus tells Hermaphroditus that no matter how hard he may try, he won't be able to get out of her grasp, and then she calls up to the gods, asking for them to be merged together, becoming one being, never again to be apart. Which would be kind of romantic if Hermaphroditus had wanted any part of it, instead it's gross and awful. And this at least in Ovid's telling, is how Hermaphroditus becomes intersex, both male and female. It also tells that this pool where the transformation occurs on the request of Hermaphroditus to his godly parents now serves to transform anyone who swims in it. again to our friend Dionysus, though this time I'll call him just that. When we meet Dionysus here, he's needing to travel to the underworld, but he doesn't know the way. He comes upon a man named Prosimnos, who promises to tell him his way into Hades, provided he fulfills one request Prosimnos has. Prosimnos, you see, wants desperately to have sex with Dionysus, Dionysus is all about sex, so he doesn't hesitate to agree to this request. He'd be happy to, he says to Prosimnus, though I'm definitely paraphrasing. Dionysus is, after all, the god of bacchanals, known for their orgies and the like. He isn't one to shy away from that type of ask. And so Prosimnos tells Dionysus how to reach his destination in the underworld, giving him all the instructions and directions. This is it. Your moment. 
This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists, like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. He needs to fulfill whatever it is he needs to do there. We're not told what. But when Dionysus returns from the underworld to seek out Prosimnos to fulfill the promise he happily made with the man, he is unable to find him, as... Prosimnos had died in the time it took Dionysus to travel to the underworld and back. But Dionysus doesn't want to let that keep him from fulfilling his promise. Necrophilia? You might ask out loud, hesitantly, as I tell you Dionysus plans to fulfill the request, even though Prosimnos is dead. But don't be disgusting. No, Dionysus has a far cleverer way of doing this. He travels to Prosimnos' tomb and he brings with him a branch from a nearby fig tree. Dionysus carefully shapes this branch into the shape of a phallus, and a nice one at that. And with his fig tree phallus, Dionysus fulfills the promise he made to Prosimnos. How incredibly romantic, wouldn't you say? Because of this act by Dionysus, because he fulfilled his promise in this incredibly creative and Dionysian way, Thus begins the practice of phalloi. These are memorials to this event, set up in cities dedicated to Dionysus. And, if I'm not mistaken, they are, quite simply, large erect penises placed quite heroically in cities around Greece. At these memorials, people would hold solemn processions 
as they sing the so-called phallic hymn, and we're told that it's because of Dionysus that they're doing this isn't a shameful act at all, but a righteous one. In Phaestus, a town near Knossos, the capital city of Crete, a man named Ligdus and his wife, Telethusa, are expecting their first child. They're not a fancy family. They're simple, with just a small plot of land. They're your everyday people. But Ligdus, much like Atalanta's father, is hell-bent on having a son. And just as I mentioned in Atalanta's episode, sons are always very much sought after. Women are just, well, they're considered far less useful. This is obviously bullshit, but such is life in ancient Greece. Ligdus is so keen to have a son that he lays it out quite bluntly to his wife. She's pretty far along in her pregnancy at this point, but there isn't an ultrasound in sight, and so people have no idea what their baby will be. Ligdus tells his wife he wishes for two things, that she won't be in too much pain, which is nice of him, and that she'll have a son, which is less helpful as the woman has zero control over the sex of the baby. Ligdus, again, has much in common with Atalanta's father, and he doesn't stop there. He tells his wife that they can't afford a daughter, which seems absurd, and so while he hopes she doesn't have one, if she does, they're going to have to kill her. Ovid tells us Ligdus is sad over this decision, though I would have told him that there's an easy solution, don't provide such a stupid ultimatum. And of course, Telethusa is very distraught, but as a woman in this society, she simply has no say in the matter. She begs him not to make this call, but Ligdus does it anyway. They'll have to kill the child if she's a girl. Finally, the time has come. Telethusa goes into labor, and she's just dreading the whole ordeal. Not because of the pain that she's prepared for. She's a woman, after all. No, she's dreading the possibility that she'll have a daughter, and so, in the end, she'll have no child at all. Just before she's about to have the baby, though, a goddess appears before her. It's Isis. Crete, as you may know, is a Greek island, but it's closer to Egypt than it is to Greece, so it's not out of the realm of possibility that there would be interactions with that pantheon of gods. There was also some crossover, whether it was gods and goddesses that were considered to be part of both pantheons, though with different names, or Egyptian goddesses worshipped in parts of Greece. Isis is one of these, an Egyptian goddess who transcends location. The gods of Egypt don't have quite as clear roles as those of the Greeks. Isis is a goddess of many things, and she's one of the most important goddesses in that mythology. She's wife of Osiris, mother of Horus, she's a mother goddess, a queen. Isis appears to Telethusa as she lies in labor, and she's not alone. She's brought with her so many of Egypt's most powerful gods. Anubis, the jackal, is there. Bubastis, who's most famously known as Bast, the cat or lion goddess. Apis, the bull god. Horus, and even Osiris himself. She's truly being attended to by the best of the best of the Egyptian gods. But... It's only Isis who speaks to Telethusa. She tells her that the goddess is here to tell her she doesn't need to listen to her husband. Isis is there to provide comfort to Telethusa, who has worshipped her so very faithfully. 
And with that, Isis and the other gods disappear, leaving Telethusa to give birth to her child. Having just experienced Isis telling her not to worry, that her child doesn't have to die, Telethusa is filled with relief. She's now more than ready to give birth, and she does. Her daughter is born. And with that, Telethusa puts her plan into action. She and the nurse, the only other person to know that the child is a girl, will simply lie. They'll tell everyone that Telethusa has given birth to a boy, and most importantly, that's what they'll tell her husband, Ligdis. Ligdis is thrilled, relieved, and utterly thrilled that his wife has given birth to a boy. He thanks the gods, and he and Telethusa name the baby after Ligdis's father, Iphis. Telethusa is more than happy to name the baby Iphis, because it's a name that could be used for boy or a girl. Apparently. With the name Iphis, Telethusa doesn't feel like she's lying quite so much. It makes her feel better. But the deception continues as the child grows. But, we're told, whether they were assigned to a boy or a girl, the child is handsome. And so, the child grows. And just like that, they were 13. At 13, which it seems we're to believe is definitely not too young, Iphis's father finds a girl for them to marry. The girl's name is Ianthe. Ianthe is the most beautiful in all of Feastus, the most talked about for her perfection. Ovid tells us Iphis and Ianthe are equal in their beauty and trained by the same tutors. They learned everything they knew together and have been together for a long time, long before it was decided they would marry. This is an arranged marriage that, for once, is quite welcome. The two are very much in love, they've been best friends their whole childhoods, they've grown very close, and they're truly devoted to one another. But one of them is excited to be married, and the other one is very, very troubled. Ianthe is eager to marry the one she loves, the one she believes to be a boy, Iphis. Iphis, though, knows the truth. She knows that she's a girl, that's believed by all others, to be a boy. She knows that while she loves Ianthe completely, Ianthe will never be hers. Because of this, it seems, she loves her even more. Ovid says, quote, it's hard to check her tears. Iphis is horribly depressed. She feels her love is wrong, that the gods should have ended her rather than cause her to live like this. She feels she isn't meant to love another girl because, she's told, it's not natural. Ugh. Iphis feels it's so unnatural that she loves another girl that she likens it to other monstrosities that have taken place on Crete. She feels her love for Ianthe is just as monstrous as Pasiphae's love for the bull, though she believes even that is less disturbing than her love for Ianthe because she thinks at least Pasiphae loved a male bull, not a cow. God, it's heartbreaking just reading this. You should all read Ovid's telling, too. It's just beautiful, and it's not in the slightest bit morally judgmental. It just tells what Iphis feels. Iphis longs to change herself. She theorizes that even if Daedalus himself were to return to Crete, even he couldn't save her. She was born a girl, and she tells herself she must return to what's natural. She must forget about Ianthe. But she can't. She keeps berating herself, considering her situation. Finally, she thinks about how what she wants is what everyone wants, though they don't entirely understand. She wants Ianthe, and her father wants her to want Ianthe. She wants Ianthe, and Ianthe wants her back. 
it's only nature, she believes, that isn't on her side. Though she thinks about how the gods have given her everything up until this point, no request has been denied. Why, she asks, are Juno and Hymen, the goddesses of marriage, Juno being Hera in Greek, ready to grace the marriage set to take place that has, quote, no husband, just two brides? Meanwhile, Ianthe is praying to the gods for their wedding to come soon. She's just so excited to be finally marrying Iphis. But Iphis's mother, one of the three who knows the truth, is praying for quite the opposite. She's constantly trying to delay, to put the wedding off, to save Iphis's secret. Finally, though, there's nothing more to use as a means of delaying the inevitable, and their wedding is set for the very next day. That night, Telethusa goes to Isis's temple, and she prays. She prays to Isis to solve this, somehow. Isis is the reason Iphis is alive at all. Certainly she can help. Telethusa pleads with Isis to take pity and save Iphis once again. As they leave Isis's temple, Iphis walks behind Telethusa, but her stride is a little longer, her features more striking, She's more broad, and her hair is shorter. Iphis is no longer the girl that feared the following day, even though it was all he wanted in the world. Now he's a boy, and Telethusa, who's beyond thrilled, tells her son he no longer has to fear. And so the wedding goes as planned the next day. Venus, Juno, and Hymen all watched with smiles as Iphis marries his love, Ianthe. This story is one I'm so happy to tell. And obviously, I think we can view it now a little differently than it was then, too. Because while in the way it's told, it feels forced by the father, I think instead we can consider this a story of a trans youth. Or if you prefer to feel a connection to it as a story of lesbian youths, that's also appropriate. This is a world where two women couldn't be together, not officially, and this is a mythological way of solving the problem that I'm sure so many women and trans people faced back then. The gods solved it, the gods made Iphis the boy he always felt he was, or the gods made Iphis the boy he had to be in order to be with Ianthe, the girl he loved, in a world where there was simply not the possibility of otherwise. Any way you see it, it's a beautiful story about something that so many people faced then and still face now. Oh, nerds, thank you all so much for listening. Once again, so excited for the conversation episodes that are going to come this Friday as well as next week. And in the meantime, thank you all so much for listening. You are all the absolute best. I am Liv and I love this shit. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Fuma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.